Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Salvage Poetics, Post-Holocaust American Jewish Folk Ethnographies, published by Wayne State University Press in 2020, Sheila Jelen explores how American Jewish post-Holocaust writers, scholars, and editors adapted pre-Holocaust works, such as Yiddish fiction and documentary photography, for popular consumption by American Jews in the post-Holocaust decades. These texts, Jelen argues, serve to help clarify the role of East European Jewish identity in the construction of a post-Holocaust American one. In her analysis of a variety of hybrid texts, those that exist on the border between ethnography and art, Jelen traces the gradual shift from the verbal to visual Jewish literacy among Jewish Americans after the Holocaust. Sheila E. Jelen is Associate Professor of Hebrew and Jewish Studies in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of Kentucky, Lexington. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book? Thank you. So, um... My background is that I started my career in Hebrew literature. I got a PhD in Hebrew literature, um, really in comparative literature with an emphasis on Hebrew and English and Yiddish um, at the University of California, Berkeley. And my first book project was on a woman writer named Devora Baron, who was born in what is now Ukraine. Um, and she was the daughter of a rabbi. And she moved to Israel in 1911, I believe. I've already forgotten, even though I wrote a book about her. Um, And she she wrote stories about women's experience in Eastern Europe, Jewish women's experience in Eastern Europe um, at the turn of the 20th century. And when I was writing about her, I was really interested in hearing her stories, particularly about women's experiences, because my own grandmothers had been born in Eastern Europe, had survived the Holocaust. And I felt to some extent that I was hearing through Devorah Baron the stories that my grandparents, my grandmothers weren't comfortable telling me. Um, Little details about life, such as you know, when they made pies, they would put them on the windowsills to cool or what it was like to um, be infertile in the shtetl. Um, and so I was asking a lot of questions about Devora Baron, what she wrote about, um, how it reflected real life in the shtetl. And my advisors um, were very, very, very hesitant to encourage me to look at her work from an ethnographic perspective as a description of a culture. So I wrote my book um, without really acknowledging that I was very, very interested in, in her work in part because of the culture she was telling us about. I really was supposed to be focusing on her modernist techniques and on her role as a woman writer in a cadre of male writers in a moment in Hebrew literature when women didn't know Hebrew. Um, and But there was one story in particular called Fraudel, which is the name of the protagonist of the story. Fraudel goes to the ritual bath. She goes to the mikvah. And the story really goes out of its way to explain what the mikvah was And a lot goes on in terms of the drama of the story and the institution where it takes place. Um, And I realized in analyzing that story that my next book was going to be about where literature does ethnographic work, how literature, specifically from the turn of the 20th century in Jewish languages, such as Hebrew and Yiddish, um, acknowledges 
the decline of a, of a world that was already in decline before the Holocaust. Um, world War I was very hard on the Jews of Europe. And there was also a lot of modernization, the rise of Zionism, the rise of socialism, um, a lot of secularism happening at that time. So Devorah Baron was one of many writers who were actually documenting a world in decline. And one of the interesting paradoxes is that she was writing in a sacred language. She was writing in the language of liturgy, the language of um, Jewish texts, which was Hebrew. And just by writing a modern literature in that language, she was acknowledging that she was already modern and she was pretty secular. Um, so that was one of the origins of this book. I, I decided that I really wanted to understand how how literary texts do ethnographic work for us. Um, and so that was one starting point. And then I had another starting point for this book, which really goes back to childhood. When I would visit my father, I grew up in Chicago. My parents were not married anymore by the time I was a teenager. And I would spend Shabbat with my father at his house every other week. And his new wife had a whole collection of picture books, of photo books, um, in the back room where I used to sleep. And I spent many, many, many Shabbat afternoons looking through these photo books of life in Eastern Europe. And I was really fascinated by them. And I was a, a person who, I went to Orthodox Jewish day schools all my life um, through 12th grade. And I was perfectly well-versed in uh, Jewish culture as it was lived in Chicago. But I still felt as if these photographs were giving me a, a, a window into a world that I really knew very little about. And so I decided when I became a professor that I really wanted to think a lot about the role of those photo books in American Jewish understandings of East European Jewish life, because I myself, you would think, wouldn't need to look at those photo books, but I, but I did need to, and I and I enjoyed them, and I got so much out of them. So, Salvage Poetics, the book that we're talking about today, really came out of me at the crossroads of those two phenomena, right? The the question of what role do photographs play in post-Holocaust American understandings of pre-Holocaust East European Jewish life? And what role does literature play in understandings of pre-Holocaust Jewish life in Jewish languages? Oh, thank you for that. So th for kind of setting that up here. So um, your book, you focus a lot on the, uh, you call the third generation of uh, Eastern European Jewish immigrants in America, who after World War II, end up going, uh, uh, moving into the suburbs or leaving the, the cities or moving to the suburbs. And along with their change in, uh, uh, in their class status and their geographical location, there's also all sorts of changes in their Jewish you know the the kind of the nature or uh, um, quality of their Jewishness, and you frame it in terms of uh, Nathan Glazer, the famous sociologist, when he talks about Jewishness versus Judaism. What, what do you? What did he mean? What do you get from that uh, when you that distinction? Great question. Um, yeah, I start my book with a discussion of um, Nathan Glazer's book called. Uh, I think it was called Judaism. It was written in a series that represented the major religions in America. It was uh, written alongside a book on Protestantism and Catholicism, if I remember correctly. And what Nathan Glazer writes about is the sense that by writing this book, he was participating in this misunderstanding of Judaism, right? That Judaism wasn't a religion in the way that Catholicism was a religion or Protestantism was a religion. But by being asked to write this book and by, and by agreeing to write this book, he was participating in the reshaping of Judaism for an American um, understanding of, 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 of Judaism. So what was that? Um, Nathan Glazer describes the way that Jewishness is both a culture and a theology. Um, 
And so the Jews who, who are Jewish, who practice Jewishness, do so much more than attend synagogue. They, um, if you look at it um, on a religious spectrum, Judaism is very much a home-based religion. It involves everything from how you eat to how you put on your shoes to what you say when you wake up in the morning to um, the blessings that you make before you do almost anything. Um, and so as Jews became more middle class and started moving out to the suburbs, they began to try to create a Judaism that wasn't so organic to the everyday life of the Jews. They tried to create a Judaism that was more like a community center, more like um, a church. And even if you weren't looking at Jewishness within a religious context, but you were looking at it from a more cultural context, you have writers like Irving Howe, um, who describe the Lower East Side world that they grew up in, where you didn't have to necessarily be Jewishly observant to feel extremely Jewish. It, it had to do with the Yiddish that was spoken. It had to do with the food that was eaten. It had to do with the literature that people were familiar with from the old country, etc. So even if it you weren't incorporating Jewish law into every minute of your life. There was a sense that you lived in a Jewish neighborhood. There was a sense that, that, that the people you interacted with all came from a common Jewish world and worldview. And so what Nathan Glazer was doing by distinguishing between Jewishness and Judaism was he was saying in, in trying to become upper middle class white Americans, um, what we've had to do is we've had to turn Judaism into the kind of religion that upper middle class white Americans practice, which is, you know, a religion that that is very much practiced in institutions, but isn't necessarily pervasive of every aspect of life. Um, and so what I what I trace in Salvage Poetics really is um, how American Jews who are interested in the third generation, especially after the Holocaust, in the world that was destroyed, um, had to find means of understanding that culture without a great degree of literacy. So, you know, the third generation didn't really know Yiddish anymore. They, they didn't really have a good grasp of Jewish texts, by and large. Their Jewish experience was really limited. And so what I'm looking at are these texts that were um, adapted from the old country, essentially, both visual texts like photographs and literary texts like the stories of Shalom Aleichem, for example. They were basically translated, narrated, adapted, glossed, explained, for an audience that really wanted to get a glimpse into that world, but really didn't have the skills to do so if they were handed a prayer book or if they were handed a Talmud or if they were handed a, a, a Yiddish story. Um, so people like Maurice Samuels, for example, took the stories of Shalom Aleichem and he um, translated them, and he also glossed them. He turned it into a kind of explanation of East European Jewish culture on the basis of the Shalom Aleichem stories that Americans were very familiar with through Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and that is what I call a hybrid text. It's a text that exists on the border, as you said in your introduction, between ethnography or the description of a culture and literature. Um, but something that I noticed while I was navigating this shift from um, between Jewishness and Judaism, I noticed that um, as you move further and further away from the Holocaust, the texts become more and more visual. Um, and that, I think, is also a question of literacy, um, because it's much easier to look at photographs than it is to read a short story even if it's translated from the Yiddish, because so much of the short story itself, for example, pr um, presumes a kind of Jewish literacy. So if anyone has ever read the stories of Shalom Aleichem, which I, do, which I teach in my classrooms, 
it's it's actually very hard to understand them, even if they're in English, because the humor that grows out of them is really a humor that's based on familiarity with the liturgy. Um, so, for example, Tevya in one of the early stories of the of the of the milkman cycle that Fiddler on the Roof is based on, tries to say the Amida, the the um, the eighteen benedictions, which is a basic prayer in Judaism. It's recited three times a day on regular days and four times a day on other days. And <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very basic prayer, but it requires that you stand at attention with your feet together. And Tevya in this story is running after his horse while he's saying the Amida. So obviously this is hysterically funny for anyone who's ever spent <laughs> a lot of time saying this prayer in a synagogue because one of the first things you learn as a young child is how to keep your feet together during this prayer to stop wiggling and to stop laughing and to stop talking, right? Um, but in the Tevi story, he's like running after a horse while he says it. Now, this works really well for people who understand that prayer, but for a col- in a college classroom like, like the one I teach in, they don't know what the Amida is. They don't know that this is funny. So, so basically, that's what I'm documenting is how these uh, texts become more visual in order to accommodate the lack of literacy in a community that has lost its Jewishness, but has become more Judaic. Right. And that process you refer to as uh, um, salvage poetics, right? Yes. So salvage poetics describes the way that an artifact from pre-Holocaust East European um, Jewish experience is basically adapted for an audience in America. One thing I want to add is that the texts that are usually used for this purpose already have a seed of um, adaptation within them. Like I described before, Devorah Baron, um, where I started this project from in my first book, um, she was already creating texts that were documenting a world being extinguished. Um, so her texts are particularly interesting as um, a, a literary text that can be used in a hybrid way because it already acknowledges its own demise. Um, and so, yes, so salvage poetics really are those poetics that emerge from a text or from a group of photographs, which I am sure we'll talk about in the course of this conversation as well, um, that are already embedded with a kind of nostalgia or a kind of explanatory tone that becomes useful for a scholar or a writer um, to jump off of in further adaptations and in further explanations for an audience that really needs that assistance. Right. And you mentioned Maurice Samuel and what he was doing with the Shalom Aleichem stories in his books. And I think it uh, it's worth just highlighting that for a moment, that uh, obviously all translations on some level are also interpretations, right? There's no such thing as a quote-unquote pure translation. And yet, clearly, <laughs> what Samuel was doing with the Shalom Aleichem stories was taking it to a whole nother level. And uh, if you could speak about that and how how we could see very clearly the distinction between what he was doing and especially his role in the final or his place in the final product compared to a kind of regular translation from one language you know, to another. Absolutely. One of the interesting things about the Shalom Aleichem stories is that, um, you know, the name of the author was actually not Shalom Aleichem. It was Shalom Rabinovich. Um, and he created a literary persona, which he called Shalom Aleichem, which means how do you do in Yiddish, um, based on the Hebrew for Shalom Aleichem, which means peace unto you. Um, so in the original stories, there's this character named Shalom Aleichem who talks to Tevye. And Tevye tells his story to this guy named Shalom Aleichem who says, okay, now that you've told me your stories, I'm going to write them down. So 
the interesting thing about what Maurice Samuels does in his um, adaptation of the Shalom Aleichem stories for purposes of creating a hybrid text that will help Americans understand the lost world is he injects himself, Maurice Samuels injects himself into the story and he takes on the role of Shalom Aleichem. He, it's, it's, it's as if he's describing a world that he himself is inhabiting and he is giving us a tour of that world. So it's not that he's talking to Tevya in the way that Shalom Aleichem, the character, talks to Tevya in the stories themselves. He's actually talking to us. And he is making it possible for us to understand what Tevya is talking about. Um, and so this is actually something that I document in a lot of the texts that I study and write about in this book. A lot of these authors really had a stake in this work that they were doing. And they felt that in order to really build a bridge between American Jews and East European Jews across the abyss of the Holocaust, they needed to be a part of both stories at once. They needed to be a member of the American Jewish community that they were speaking to, and they also needed to have some kind of credibility when it came to the Eastern European Jewish world. So the truth is that Maurice Samuels was born in Eastern Europe. He was raised in England, um, and he came over to America when he was already in his I think in his 20s, as part of his um, army service, he, he, he came over to America as a part of that. And so he talks in other works that he's written about the fact that when he was growing up in England, his family used to have like Yiddish story nights and they would, they would lay around and, and, and read parrots and read Shalom Aleichem. Um, and he, he feels like even though he was very, very young when he left Eastern Europe and moved to England, he still feels like it was a part of his upbringing and he goes out of his way to share that. But what's most interesting to me is how he does it in um, the world of Shalom Aleichem. He becomes Shalom Aleichem because he feels that he has to um, have a foot in both worlds. And he also wants to adopt some of the strategies that made Shalom Aleichem so popular. Um, I mean, what the reason people loved Shalom Aleichem so much was because he was really speaking from the people to the people in the, in the idiom of the people. And, and Maurice Samuels feels the need to reproduce that in his work. We see that as well in Roman Vishniak's uh, very famous photographs that are published in A Vanished World. Um, he basically tells the story of each photograph as if he is the subject of that photograph, as if he knew the subject of that photograph intimately, even though it's not even clear that Roman Vishniak knew enough Yiddish to talk to the subjects of his photographs. Um, he knew Russian. He grew up in, in Russia. But um, he, he basically makes up stories about each of the photographs um, in the in the later version of his publication of those photographs, which came out in 1983, in the earlier version of those same photographs, which came out in 1947, I believe, um, there are very minimal captions, and um, the stories basically the photographs tell their own story. Um, but in the later version, as we move further and further away from the Holocaust and as we move further and further away from Jewish literacy, um, he really feels the need to incorporate himself into the story of each and every one of those photographs. I call this a kind of autoethnographic approach. Um, and I see it, you know, again, I see it in common between Maurice Samuels and Roman Vishniak. But another um, example I think of this is in Lucy Davidovich's book. Wait, wait sorry, one second. I, I want to ask you one detail about, yes. uh, I can listen to you forever. I want to ask you one detail about the Roman Vishniak uh, saga uh, yes. that you talk in your book, one of the, the many um, um, moments in your book that I just, I really love. You talk about how he inserts himself into a Helm-like story. And if you could tell us about that, because I, I think it's just brilliant. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a whole a whole big story. Um, I'll begin with this, and I'll probably branch off into something else. But <laughs> Helm, 
Yeah, so there's one moment. He takes a picture of a, of a cart driver. Um, and he tells this story. He says, I had to be driven out to some remote place to take to do a photo shoot. And I asked this cart driver to drive me there. And I said, leave me there for three days and then come back and get me. So the cart driver took him, left him, and came back three days later. And when he came back three days later, he asked for three days worth of money. And Roman Vishniak said, what, why, why are you charging me for three full days? I, I, you know, I just took two rides with you, right? I, um, here and back. <laughs> and, and the cart driver said, well, in those three days, while I was waiting for you, my child died. My wife got sick. I had to pay for burial. I had to pay for doctors. It was a very traumatic three days. And the whole time I was, you know, counting the minutes until, you know, until I had to go back and get you. I was, was keeping track of time. You know, I was, I was on, I was on the clock and you were on the clock too. And, um, Roman Vishniak, of course, felt terrible about his, you know, the terrible things that had happened in his family and he paid him for the three days. So this is a this is as as you said a helm story a story about um, fools right about you know people who are so foolish that they're brilliant actually right um, and this is a genre of Jewish literature that became very popular at the turn of the twentieth century indeed um, they were published and collected by a photographer named Menachem Kipnis. He was a photographer, but he was also a, a, an ethnomusicologist and an ethnographer. Um, he was killed. He was, he died in the Warsaw ghetto, and, but he, he did collect a bunch of Helm stories and they were so popular. In fact, that people from the actual city of Helm, including my own great grandfather, were mortified because they couldn't <laughs> Their daughters off anymore because everyone thought that everyone from Helm was a fool. <laughs> so, um, so why was Roman Vishniak claiming this experience if, in fact, it's a recognizable Helm story? <laughs> and so, before I answer that question, I want to give a little more background. When I was writing about Roman Vishniak, his his photographs are very, very famous. Most people have a copy of his book of vanished worlds somewhere on their coffee table. Or, Could you just describe really briefly, what are the pictures like? What, what was he photographing? What, what's the kind of uh, the, the, the feel of, of those images? Yeah. So he was, um, he was commissioned to, by the joint distribution committee to, um, to take photographs of East European Jews in the 19, um, in the mid 1930s in order to help raise money for them to immigrate. So he was supposed to be taking pictures of Jews who are impoverished um, and traditional um, so that American Jews would donate money for their immigration. Um, and the photographs are just that. They're, they're, they're in black and white. They're very, very beautiful. He's a very talented photographer. Um, they are mostly of men um, traditional Jewish men, men carrying holy books around on the street, men in traditional Jewish dress, men in houses of study. There are some women mixed in here and there. Um, now, the interesting thing is the period in which he was taking these pictures was a period of, of immense uh, productivity and culture and education and shift and change and modernization among the Jews. But you don't really see any of that in his photographs. His photographs really are like a throwback, you know, to the, um, you know, early 19th century in terms of where Jews were at. Um, but these were the Jews that, you know, these were the photographs that were going to help the cause. Right. So those are the photographs he took. And, um, he and 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 he was really made famous by these photographs. There was an exhibit um, recently in New York um, at the International Center for Photography that was curated by Maya Benton, which show which attempted to show us the other Vishniak, the the photographs that he took that weren't of Orthodox Jewish men, <laughs> um, and. That, that was an interesting undertaking um, and an interesting exhibit. 
if I could just interject for one second, I think I must have, maybe there was an article, a write-up or something about the exhibit that you're referring to. And I saw those pictures and I, I, I almost plotted. I almost, I, I lost it because I, uh, like you were describing, I grew up surrounded by uh, um, uh, volumes of Roman Vishniak's, um, quote unquote, you know, shtetl, Jews, these very traditional Eastern European, uh, like you said, mostly men, very pious, whatever. And then I saw these other pictures of of circus acts or people at zoos or something, and I couldn't believe, first of all, that the same photographer took both sets of pictures and that the same world existed in Eastern Europe at the same time. He didn't go, you know, from Eastern Europe to Paris or something. Like, this was both, like, two totally different, almost apparently kind of hermetically sealed worlds taking place at the same time in very close proximity to each other. Absolutely. And there was a book published in the late 1970s called Image Before My Eyes, which attempted to present a a Jewish world that was not all traditional and all pious, but that was actually doing theater and writing poetry and, um, you know, revolutionizing labor practices and stuff like that. Um, And in fact, I do focus on that book in one of the chapters of my book um, as well. So to go back to the question of why he felt, you know, why he felt the need to incorporate a Helm story into his own personal biography <laughs> and frame the stories and, and the, the photographs in that way, when I was first um, writing the chapter on Vishniak, I had to seek out rights to a lot of his photographs. So I went to Maya Benton, the same person who did that exhibit, um, and I had to request rights to his photographs from her because she was in charge of that. And she sent a copy of my chapter to Vishniak's grandson. And um, his grandson is a historian. And he was very concerned that I not reproduce any of uh, Vishniak's fictions, um, including some you know, something like the Helm story as his own biography, right? He was very concerned about that. And it was so interesting to me because I'm not a historian. I'm a literature scholar. And for me, I didn't care if he really did have this interaction with the cart driver. (laughs) What I cared about was why he was using a Chalm story in order to frame this photograph. And also, what, what was he doing with all the stories that he told, incorporating himself into the photographs? What was he trying to accomplish? Um, you know, I cleaned up my chapter to make sure I, I, I kept the facts separate from the fiction um, to satisfy the needs um, so I could get the rights to the photographs. But again, I want to reiterate that, that what's interesting to me is the story that's crafted, the story that's told from artifacts um, in order to build a bridge between the old world and the new world between the world before the Holocaust and the world after the Holocaust. Um, and so I think that's why he was using this home story because he was using the home story as an artifact and he was pairing it up with the photographs um, in order to build a bridge. Right. Right. And so w- one thing that I wonder is how self-aware were those who were involved in the process of salvage poetics, how self-aware were they about their own involvement in the process? In other words, did they know and did they acknowledge that they were creating a mediated artifact rather than, quote-unquote, a simple translation or a simple representation of what was out there, you know, before the Holocaust? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, in my literary training, I was I, I was taught never to ask what the author intended. <laughs> oh, wow. That's always my first question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I do want to say that um, I think I think that they were a lot less hung up on um, changing things around as, ne- as necessity demanded, right? Um, so, for example, in my introduction, I talk about other ethnographic projects that were taking place 
um, at the turn of the 20th century that I looked to as models for what my American um, historians and writers and, and cultural critics were doing with these artifacts, these texts, and these photographs. Um, and Buber, Martin Buber, was was one of the examples that I that I presented my in my introduction. And Martin Buber took Hasidic stories, and he. Um, translated them into German, and he edited them and streamlined them and presented them to a largely assimilated German population who was um, disaffected by the uh, fact that they were really assimilated. Um, They felt that they wanted to understand more about the world that they had left behind. And there was a big debate over the changes that Buber had imposed on the Hasidic narratives because he's presenting it as a genre that is authentic and religious and deep um, to an audience that is thirsty for that stuff. But in fact, what he's presenting them with is not the real deal, right? It, it's really, it's really his version of what these stories contain. And he did discuss it in some of his essays. And he says, I really felt that if I didn't change them in certain ways, they wouldn't be readable or comprehensible. And there's some truth to that, right? And, and, and so I think that um, you know, the academics and the scholars were much more concerned about what Maurice Samuels was doing to Shalom Aleichem or what Martin Buber was doing to Hasidic stories. But I think, again, my focus is on sort of popular audiences and, and the question of how do American Jews know what they think they know about pre-Holocaust East European Jewish life? Um, what are they reading? What are they looking at? How are the people who are producing those materials engaging with those materials and adapting those materials. So the question of consciousness or unconsciousness, yeah, I think they consciously knew that they were making pretty dramatic changes, but they also consciously knew that they had to, that that they had to. Um, One, I think, interesting example, I brought her up earlier and I didn't finish my my thought, but Lucy Davidovich, who was a historian um, of the Holocaust, um, she wrote, she edited a book. It was an anthology of, of essays basically called the golden tradition in which she tries to represent the major streams of thought in East European Jewish life from before the war. And my observation about her book is that she, she basically doesn't represent Orthodox life at all. So even though just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how Roman Vishniak only represented Orthodox life. Lucy Davidovich didn't really represent Orthodox voices. She 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 had like a couple of essays that that did represent that, but much of the book is about secularism and socialism and Jewish art and stuff like that. Um, and I asked myself the question, how could you do that? I mean, it's easy, it's easier to ignore the secular world. when you're trying to memorialize the Holocaust than it is to ignore the Orthodox world, right? So where was she coming from? Well, she spent a year in Vilna at the YIVO Institute um, before it um, moved to New York and and before the war um, basically started. She left on the very last boat, I think, um, that could take her back to America in 1939. And she basically had spent one of those transformative years that one spends as a young adult, sometimes if you're lucky enough to do so, in Vilna, where she was living with families and she was learning with great scholars of Jewish history. She had wanted to get a PhD in English literature at Columbia and was not quite into it enough. And with the help of, of a of a teacher in New York, she shifted gears and decided to go to YIVO and see if she wanted to do Jewish history instead. And it turned into her vocation, her her life's work. Um, But she basically abandoned all the people who had nourished her and nurtured her during that year to their fate. And, you know, YIVO is um, is known to be a secular institution 
And so I think in many ways, her book, The Golden Tradition, was an homage to the secularism of Evo. Um, was she conscious of that? I don't think so. I don't think so, because she writes in later years about how she began to attend synagogue every week. And she it sounds like she basically became a much more observant Jew. She never set foot in a synagogue, um, I think, until she was a young adult, because she was raised in a secular Yiddishist home. Um, so quite conscious, unconscious, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but certainly, certainly, um, it certainly had a tremendous impact on what people were reading and what people were thinking about that world. Right. Well, that, that's a good answer. Um, um, uh, you were speaking before, you mentioned before about how for you and, and, and for this book, the real focus is on popular culture and how kind of the masses, the Jewish masses, um, absorbed and responded to, um, you know, these uh, cultural representations. Now, one of the, the or a major um, example of uh, or a hugely successful um, production, um, a popular production, of course, is Fiddler on the Roof, which is still beloved and by so many. Um, and you mention in your book how the process of uh, of, uh, of of producing the original Fiddler on the Roof Broadway show was itself inspired in part by an image that had a kind of a, a, a surprising origin. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So when Jerome Robbins was approached and asked to produce Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway in the 1960s, he was a, a disaffected American Jew. He, his, his bar mitzvah had been a, a kind of traumatic, uninspired <laughs> experience, and he didn't, he wasn't sure he could pull it off. Um, but he decided that in, in honor of his father, who, whose world he'd never really tried to understand, um, he, would, he would take this on. And he started looking for a photograph that would um, be his muse, that would inspire him. And he found this um, photograph of a boys' cheder, a, a house of study for little boys, very little boys, probably you know, five years old, four years old. Um, and it was taken by um, Cornell Kappa, I believe. And it was taken in New York. It was a, a, a Rebbe, a teacher, leaning over a table of little boys and pointing to a text. Now, this photograph, interestingly enough, is in a, um, a, a, a photograph of Jerome Robbins himself taken by Henri um, Cartier-Bresson in his office. And you can see that in Jerome Robbins's office, he has this photograph framed and on the wall. So the question is, how does a photograph taken in New York, probably in Crown Heights or Borough Park, right? How does a photograph taken in New York become the muse for this play that came to represent all of Eastern European Jewish experience for um, not only American Jews, but really for, for the post-Holocaust world, right? And, and, and the photograph was taken post-Holocaust. Yes, it was taken in 1950. <laughs> it was taken in 1950. So, yeah, I mean, th that's exactly what I'm trying to trace, really, is how do images become the dominant way for people like Jerome Robbins, right, to, to produce a, a play like Fiddler on the Roof? And what is Fiddler on the Roof? Going back to the beginning of our conversation, Fiddler on the Roof is an adaptation of Yiddish short stories that you need to basically be Jewishly literate to understand. So how does that become the way that the world understands East European Jewish culture. If you think about it, um, Fiddler on the Roof has only one Yiddish word in it. What is it? L'chaim. That's it. Um, and 
so it, it's just it's just a very very it was a very interesting starting point for Jerome Robbins um, to to come up with this photograph, and what it tells us quite simply is that we're more comfortable looking at ourselves, and if we can find a way to not recognize ourselves, but to be looking at ourselves, we will be able to take a step forward towards understanding the other, right? So here's an American photograph taken after the war in America, um, and it becomes a channel for Americans and the rest of the world, really, to understand something very distant. Right. And one of the works that you look at is the ethnographic work uh, titled Life is with People, written by Elizabeth Herzog and Mark Zabrowski in uh, 1952. Uh, and that became an extremely popular text. I know as a uh, used books, uh, uh, someone who spends a lot of time hunting for used books in Jewish circles, uh, many, many people's uh, parents or grandparents have a copy of the book on their shelf. I don't know if they've read it, but but they have it. Um, and how is it that that became such a popular text uh, with the masses when it was so severely criticized by scholars at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So Life is with People is an interesting story. It was commissioned um, as part of a project at Columbia to um, try to understand cultures that were in decline. It was um, overseen by Margaret Mead, um, who was a student of Franz Boas, who was um, a founder or a creator of the notion of salvage ethnographies. So that's really where the title of my book came from. Um, what was a salvage ethnography? It was it was studying a culture that was basically becoming extinct, and it was um, his work was was on Native American culture. And you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of complicated layers to to being a, an anthropologist going in and trying to document a dying culture. Is that anthropologist a part of the process of killing that culture, right? Um, and this takes us, of course, back to Devorah Baron's very self-conscious use of Hebrew as um, a sacred tool for secular means. And so she's documenting the decline of a culture in the language of that culture. Um, so Life is with People was commissioned in that sense. And it was using a method that they were experimenting with called culture at a distance because at that time, most of the pale of set of what used to be the pale of settlement where most of the Jews in Eastern Europe had lived before the war was inaccessible because of the iron curtain. Um, and so the, um, the authors of this book couldn't really, there was nowhere to go. You know, they couldn't go to a shtetl. The shtetls had been destroyed, and they couldn't even go to where the shtetls were in the way that Jonathan Safran Foer in his book Everything is Illuminated, which is a very, you know, fictionalized form of this, but, you know, the character in that book goes back to a shtetl um, or to what remains of a shtetl. They couldn't even do that. So what were they doing? They were, they were interviewing people in New York City people who had come from Europe or people whose parents had come from Europe or people whose grandparents had come from Europe. These were their informants. And um, what I noticed in reading this book was that these people often said, basically, well, my bubba tells me or told me that gefilte fish from Galicia was sweet, <laughs> you know. And so, but this is you know hearsay. Um, how could this be an ethnography, right? Um, or more importantly, people were saying, "Well, you know, you know how it was. You've read Mendele, you know. Or you know, you know how it was. You know what Shalom Aleichem describes." So, Referring to literary uh, works exactly. that were of, of fiction. Exactly. So, so these native informants were actually 
reading the same text that you and I could read and saying, well, you know, you know. Um, and so life is with people, again, like the photograph that Jerome Robbins used, we were looking at ourselves. These were New Yorkers. These were people whose grandparents and great-grandparents were like our grandparents and our great-grandparents. And the only difference between the stories they had to tell and the stories that we had to tell were that there was a bunch of, you know, a bunch of ethnographers standing behind it. Now, it's important to remember that Mark Zborowski and Elizabeth Herzog, neither of them were, were anthropologists. Um, and, and in fact, Mark Zborowski turns out to have been um, a very problematic figure. He was considered... I don't even I don't even want to say because I, I don't remember the details, but he he was basically um, not considered uh, a savory character. According um, according to Stephen uh, um, so, uh, Zipperstein, Zabrowski uh, yeah. uh, was a hit uh, a Stalinist hitman. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't. I you know my my brain is a little fuzzy at the moment, so I wasn't. I didn't remember all the the right terminology, but yes. So he, he was he was like an undercover agent, um, <laughs> undercover was, assassin. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, they say that the pen could kill, but this guy also had a pistol. Oh wow! Yeah. According yeah. to according to some authorities. Yeah, but so what made this book so popular though was that it was accessible. It was accessible, and it was familiar and it was comfortable just like you know the joys of yiddish which i don't write about in my book but i just um i just read an article about it recently the joys of yiddish by yiddishists was considered ridiculous right but you should see the kinds of love letters that leo rastin received when he wrote this book people were just you know it was like they were liberated to finally um, embrace the Yiddish that they didn't really know, you know, that they simply didn't know. Um, so I think the life is with people operated the same way. It was comfortable. It was familiar. It was accessible. Right. Well, that does that does explain a lot. Um, I'm I'm curious. You talk in your um, in your book a lot about both texts, translations of texts, um, and then also images that are part of this uh, salvage poetics. Are there also and 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 you mentioned how because of the decline of Jewish literacy, images became so much more important because they were uh, uh, so much more accessible. Um, uh, along the same lines, are there examples of films that uh, function uh, as part of the salvage poetics? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, I want to say, first of all, that I'm really interested in the, in the cinematic concept of montage. Um, so putting together images um, that the viewer has to basically make heads or tails out of, that, that, that the juxtaposition of images um, helps people to tell their own story about the work that's, um, that's in front of them. So a lot of the photographs that I analyze in my um, book are works that photographs that find their way into films about Eastern Europe. Um, so I just want to say that, first of all, that, that these photographs have a very rich um, afterlife, which is still going on today, where when people want to tell the story of a shtetl or people want to tell the story of a visit back to Europe or, or anything like that, these photographs are central. Um, in a montage sense, they, they, they serve as backdrops um, to scenes and narrations that, that are unfolding. Now, in terms of films that um, use some of these techniques, I think you and I, in an, in an earlier conversation, talked about uh, the recent Coen Brothers film. What was it? Right. The, a Serious Man from 2009. Yeah. yeah. So... 
So, so talk a little bit about that because you, you, you brought that to my attention. <laughs> I was so struck. I think it is a really good example. Well, I was just, you know, so inspired by your book and, and all of its insights about the kind of repurposing, repackaging, recycling of, um, you know, some cultural artifact uh, to a later you know, in a later period, uh, and and trying to make it accessible, and I was reminded that in the the opening scene of a serious man, which is, I mean, the the show, the the film in general, you know, is in English, but the opening scene, the whole scene, is in Yiddish, and it's like a like a scene between a I think a husband and a wife and a child, maybe um, a couple of of characters, all you know, supposedly in the shtetl and a small you know, Eastern European, uh, a Jewish village, and it's entirely in Yiddish. And it, I mean, I, I guess there's, there's, uh, uh subtitles. I, now I don't remember, but, but the point is it's supposed to, uh, evoke a whole world, the vanished world that, that, uh, um, Roman Vishniak is kind of, um, uh, pointing us towards. Um, and then it's juxtaposed with the rest of the film about, suburban Jewish life, exactly the kinds of people that you're talking about in your book, people who are struggling with their bar mitzvah because they can't read Hebrew, you know, and so on. Um, and it just seemed to me like that might be an example of a, of a, a cinematic salvage poetics. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting example. Um, there was also another film recently, can't remember the name of it. It was a man's name. It was about a Hasidic man whose child is taken away from Menasha. Menasha, right, right. Um, and I, I think, I think, in many ways, the Yiddish language, as it appears on the American stage nowadays, and also in American films, um, is what's being salvaged. It's the artifact. Um, in a lot of these examples that you're talking about. And in my book, I do discuss the Yiddish fiddler on the roof that was on the stage right before COVID, um, which was just a phenomenon. I mean, everyone was running to see it um, from all over the country, really. Um, And what was going on there was very interesting, I think. So I feel like Fiddler on the Roof has become a sacred text for American Jews. I I think that... um, it's replaced, just like Shalom Aleichem in many ways replaced the, the, the prayer book for Jews who are becoming modernized in Europe and moving to America. I think Fiddler on the Roof has become, uh, uh, has replaced <laughs> Shalom Aleichem and, and other sacred texts of, um, of Jewish experience um, in American life. And I think that people were getting thirsty for something deeper. And what they wanted was Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, in its original language. Um, And I think that that goes to what Jeffrey Chandler uh, talks about in his work about a post-vernacular, where people like my husband, for example, who don't really know Yiddish, but think they do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) says crazy things every so often while he's cooking that I think he heard in his parents' kitchen that's totally mispronounced and has all the wrong letters. But, you know, he learned it as a child from second generation and he thinks he knows Yiddish, you know. And so what is a post-vernacular? It's, it, it, it kind of takes us back to that discussion of Jewishness versus Judaism, right? A post-vernacular is, you know, you kind of know Yiddish, you know enough to get by, um, you don't even really need to know Yiddish at all to experience Yiddishness, you know? Um, And Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish was on the one hand, perhaps an attempt to move beyond the post vernacular to say, well, it's not good enough to have a play that's from Yiddish literature that only has one Yiddish word in it, which is L'chaim. I want to actually hear all Yiddish words in it. Um, and why is why is that so important? Because this is a sacred text. Because this is an institution that every Jewish American knows, and they want to get more out of it. So I think that's a really good example of salvage poetics. Yeah, I mean it's it's really kind of um, I, I, there's just so much to to think about uh, in this discussion because, uh, like you were uh, talking about the the the. Uh, 
recent Broadway um, play of uh, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish uh, and how essentially uh, the fact that it was produced in Yiddish was an attempt to kind of reclaim something more authentic than the original uh, English uh, um, play or or film in English. But one thing that's that's kind of disturbing about this whole thing is that in a sense, you know, there's no going home. We, 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 there's no, we can never go back. You know, where are we going back to, you know, because almost all of the actors I saw, like so many others, I flocked to the Broadway to watch the, the Yiddish play. But as an, uh, uh, someone who spoke Yiddish um, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, when I was a kid, um, I, I'm very familiar with Yiddish and Yiddish accents. And I was very disturbed by the the Broadway production because almost none of the actors are native Yiddish speakers. They just kind of learned the lines two weeks before the show. And and again, for, for people who don't speak Yiddish, maybe you, you, they couldn't tell. But for someone who actually speaks Yiddish, their Yiddish was very peculiar, and it definitely didn't have a kind of Hamish, homey feel to it. You know, it, it, it seemed something very artificial uh, to the extent that I found it really quite troubling. Um, so I, I think it's just it just uh, highlights the complexities of uh, of everything that we're talking about here, where there's a constant uh, um, uh, drive to try to reconnect and 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 um re-embrace some aspect of uh, earlier period in jewish history and jewish culture but we whoever the consumers of this culture is in the in the in the in the in the current situation we are not the people who were living in eastern europe in the early 20th century or you know pre-holocaust so our own linguistic abilities our own se- uh, 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 sensibilities uh, all of that is just so uh, uh, irredeemably different than than it were than it was you know in in the pre-holocaust era and therefore there's going to be endless complications yes indeed and in fact um i studied yiddish uh starting in college my grandparents spoke yiddish and it was my parents first language um growing up but i i was not raised in yiddish um and i started studying it in college and i continued studying it in graduate school and i learned a, a yivo yiddish i learned a kind of um cleaned up standardized Yiddish and my mother who is not a Yiddishist and who really fled from Yiddish as a, you know, when she figured out that the whole world didn't speak it (laughs) in Chicago, um, she sometimes, um, if I'll, I'll, my son is studying German and, and, and my husband with his fake Yiddish is also studying German and trying to like reconcile the two languages. So sometimes they'll pose questions to me. And, and if I respond with the Yiddish that I know and my mother is present, she laughs at me because my Yiddish isn't her Yiddish. And, and it's really nobody's Yiddish. You know, it's the standardized Yiddish, right? So, yeah, I mean, even people who are somewhat literate are irredeemably distant from the, the world and the language that, that, that so many people are trying to claim. Right. All right. Well, last question. Uh, could you tell us uh, what new project you're working on now? Right. So first of all, um, my Salvage Poetics project on American Jewish experience really grew out of a Salvage Poetics project that I was doing um, on Israel. I was very interested on in how um, Israeli writers write about East European Jewish life. And I started this project really with an essay on um, some Yiddish women, well, Eastern European Jewish women who emigrated to Israel and wrote about their their experiences in Hebrew. Um, and I was very interested in how Israelis were able to assimilate women's stories about East European Jewish life in this language that to a great extent pushed Yiddish down right that 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 pushed yiddish to the margins so my new so i'm writing a book called israeli salvage poetics um which isn't really a follow-up on this book as much as it's a precursor to this book um 
I have essays on Amos Oz. I have essays on Shai Agnon um, and on uh, these women, Malka Shapira and Ita Kalish and David Grossman. So that's, that's a book that I'm working on now and, and pulling together. Um, and I'm also writing a book called Testimonial Montage, which is based on a collection of um, Holocaust testimonies given by survivors of the Krakow ghetto uprising. These people were all part of Zionist youth groups in, um, in Europe, in Krakow, and they rose up against the Nazis and then testified in Israel um, for many years afterwards. And I'm just very, very interested in understanding how in a very communal culture like Israel, um, they're able to navigate in their testimonies a communal story and an individual story at the same time. So those testimonies are all in Hebrew, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm working with them. I'm doing sort of what Maurice Samuels was doing. I'm, I'm translating them and, and glossing them because I don't think Americans or English reading um, people know about the relationship between Zionist youth groups and ghetto uprisings during the war or about how very different a testimony given in America is from a testimony given in Israel. So I'm, I'm navigating that in my book, Testimonial Montage. Wow. I, that all sounds fascinating. Uh, Sheila, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me and thank you for reading my book. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.